The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, thank you for tuning into the new iteration of the Spirit Matters podcast. Uh, as many of you know, I co-hosted Spirit Matters Talk with uh, Dennis Ramundi for seven years, and uh, we accumulated an archive of nearly 300 interviews, and that remains online for your uh, pleasure and edification. It's all free, so go to spiritmatterstalk.com and take advantage of the archive. And in this new version, um, we'll continue the tradition of having conversations with a diverse range of wise and wonderful people to help you along your own spiritual path. And I'm uh, delighted today to have Matthew Fox with us. Matthew is a theologian, an Episcopal priest, a spiritual activist of renown, and uh, famously uh, had been a Catholic priest who was silenced and expelled from his order. And we'll surely talk about that. He's written more than 37 books, including Original Blessing, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, The Reinvention of Work, Naming the Unnameable. And uh, recently, uh, uh, there was a collection of titled Matthew Fox Essential Writings on creation, spirituality. Matthew, welcome, and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Philip. It's good to be with you again, and I love the the theme of your program, Spirit Matters, and um, all the interesting interviews you've shared with the world over these years. Over 300, that's quite a number. <laughs> thank you, yeah. It's been everyone a pleasure. Um, let's Let's go right to uh, your famous split with the church for people who are not familiar with it. Uh, you had a parting of the ways when you were uh, young. You were essentially cast out by 
Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope and recently passed, um, because you went against the grain of orthodoxy. What, one of the things I'm curious about, in addition to how it happened and why, is what uh, precipitated a, a change in you that led to that uh, parting of the ways? Was it, was it an epiphany of some kind? Was it a, a gradual changing of, of, of thought and feeling? What precipitated it? Well, it was an act of conscience, actually, that uh, I refused to. I, I went along with the one year of silence. Uh, he silenced two other theologians that year, um, Father Leonardo Boff in Brazil, who was a liberation theologian and the most read theologian in South America, and he silenced Eugene Druman, the most read theologian in Europe, who was a psychologist and a priest. Um, Barf was also a priest, a Franciscan. So the three of us were silenced in one year, North America, Europe, and South America. And obviously, it was a political act. They were trying to spread fear and, and tell all theologians to, to shut up and not think, which is our job, actually, to think. And um, so... I went along with the silencing uh, for a year. Actually, it lasted 14 months. But um, it was a couple of years later that he came after me again. And um, I uh, refused to. What they wanted to do was to abort my work here in California, where I was running a master's program at Holy Names College, a Catholic college, for, what, 12 years. And... Um, they had been hounding me for 10 of those years. And, um, but we were still going strong. We had a good, strong president who was a, a Catholic sister who was Scottish and she was very strong. She had a doctorate in sociology and so forth. So she stood with us and they really couldn't do that much because there is such a thing as academic freedom in American academia, which is not something that Rome knows a whole lot about. But um, make long story short, she retired, and then they came after me with kind of vengeance, and they got people within the school itself to um, pile on. And um, so I, I realized that uh, I wasn't uh, real welcome there anymore, and uh, so I started my own university. But meanwhile, they did um, give me this ultimatum. Under the vow of obedience, I had to move back to Chicago, which would have meant killing my work in the West Coast. We had a magazine going, and of course we had the school going, which was very alternative. We had Native Americans, we had physicists, we had uh, uh, feminists and activists in our faculty, as well as some theologians. And uh, it was really an experiment in education that they wanted to squelch as well. And and uh, like one of their objections to my work was that I, I worked too closely with Native Americans which at first I couldn't figure out at all. But then I realized, oh, yeah, we had a, a sweat lodge on our campus where we had students and faculty and staff doing sweat lodges with a Native American teacher who I hired and um, a Lakota man. But uh, that that got under their skin, I guess. So anyway, I thought it all over and I prayed about it. I said, no, I can't 
abort this. And I made the point that here's a church that makes such a noise about abortion, but here they are trying to abort thinkers and, <laughs> and inventors and people creating a new kind of educational model. And um, so I just couldn't say yes to that. And I told them so. And, um, and then they booted me. But, um, uh, and then I became Episcopalian because I was working with young people in Sheffield, England, who had, uh, were trying to reinvent worship or liturgy using raves. So they, and Sheffield, England was one of the, the hot places for rave in its origins. And it was not drug-based at all, but, um, make long story short, these young people in England, they had worked with the church, the England church, to uh, bring rave into into the, the liturgy. And I thought this was very impressive. And uh, I said, how can I help you guys? Because I went out to check what they were doing there. And um, they said, uh, well, if you became Episcopalian, you could run interference for us because most theologians don't get what we're doing, but you do. And we're using your theology like the Cosmic Christ theology, you know. So again, I thought and prayed about that. I said, well, the Pope doesn't mean me. He's, he's just fired me. So I went and talked to the Episcopal Bishop in San Francisco and said, here's the deal. I'm thinking of becoming Episcopalian, but only for one reason, to work with young people to reinvent forms of worship, to bring in this postmodern art form of rave, which includes DJ and VJ and rap and dance. And, um, and I think we need to rejuvenate liturgy and make it interesting for a new generation and the bishop bishop swing said go for it he said you got a green light with me because we're not doing anything for the young people he said you're talking about a new new consciousness emerging and a new generation so um that kind of sealed it for me that um mm. hope didn't need me and i i found a place that would um allow me to think the episcopal church allows you to think at this time in history, and um, and unfortunately, and with the previous two popes, uh, thinking was um, was abolished. It was aborted. <laughs> it really was. They dumbed down the church. This pope who just died. Absolutely, history will show he dumbed down the church, and they turned it over to a lot of fascist um, uh, forces, and they they named a lot of. Uh, they killed liberation theology in South America, which was full of thinking and ideas and strategies, practical ones that were really gaining a lot of influence to overcome the militarism of a lot of the dictators in South America. There is where they ran into the CIA, because uh, I prove in my book called The Pope's War that uh, under Reagan, the CIA linked up with with Pope John Paul II in a very strong way, and they did a quid pro quo. If the church went after liberation theology in South America, uh, they got a lot of cash from none other than the head of CIA made 30 trips to the Vatican with, with satchels full of cash to give to the Pope, to give to solidarity, etc. It was a whole thing going on. And of course, Pinochet was supported uh, by the hierarchy in uh, in Chile, but not, um, now I get it mixed up, Chile or Peru, Peru or Chile, I forget. But um, <laughs> but he was, uh, uh, 
not, of course, beloved by the people. So there was this split. The CIA chose to split the church in South America. And that's a very good example. And uh, so it was much more than about me. It was about politics and it was about um, not just politics within the church, but politics uh, outside as well with organizations like the CIA back then. I think the CIA has done some reforming since then, but thanks to the church committee. But um, uh, back then it was very active, as you know, in um, in assassinations uh, around the world. So, and of course, in the overthrow of Pinochet's, uh, of Hollande's government and replacing him with Pinochet, or a true, you know, sadistic, uh, yeah, uh, dictator. I see the makings of a, a great thriller in this, Matthew. Maybe you should. <laughs> uh, oh, that, I, you're the first one to say that. You've got imagination, but uh, <laughs> we've lived through some interesting times. You and oh, I, my. our generation, has seen a lot, right? Yes, and it it continues. Uh, yes, it's now. It's to be continued, uh, unfortunately. And I'd like to come back to that, but I want to. I want to ask you something. I just read, and uh, I was looking at some uh, uh, a bi biographical information about you, and I saw that when you were very young, when you were a child, you you apparently had a spiritual breakthrough at Niagara Falls. And I'm, I'm, I found that very interesting. I always like stories of sort of spiritual origins and epiphany. Mm -hmm. um, how did that affect you? And um, it, it was not hard to think there may be a link between that and creation spirituality and your concern about the environment. Absolutely. Uh, you're right. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and it's a beautiful city, and it wasn't a very large city, but it had a capital. It was a capital city, and it had a, a university. But above all, it had nature, and you had really four real seasons of the year back then before climate change. I remember one winter, we had to crawl out the second floor windows because the snow was so high and so forth. So I was taken by by the seasons and by nature and uh madison itself had five lakes within its city limits and so there was skating and swimming and boating and fishing and all that going on and um all that was a big part of my spirituality to look back on it as you say and then when we made this trip as a family to the east coast because i have some relatives out there we did stop at niagara falls and i was yes i was very moved by that and um <clears throat> And on the way back, actually, the same trip is when I uh, I got polio. So I would have been 12 years old then. And um, and that had an effect on my vocation, too, if you will, because I lost my legs. And my father had been a football coach in Wisconsin, and my older brothers were a state football or something. And I just figured, well, this is what a, a boy does. You you play football. And, um, and all of a sudden, they couldn't tell me if I could walk again. So um, that was really interesting. In a way, I left my father, you might say, because I kind of let go of the idea of being a football player. My hope was just to be able to walk again. And um, 
eventually I did get my legs back. And I remember when I did, I said to the universe, I said, I'll never take my legs for granted again. And I think that's a mystical statement, even though I was only 12 or 13, um, not to take for granted, you know, even our breath. I mean, this is one reason meditation practices around the world are often based on breath. Uh, you know, it's a good thing not to take our breath for granted because it's pretty, it's pretty fundamental. But, you know, I had another mystical experience that was real important to me when I was a, a junior in high school. <clears throat> Between over the summer, I read Tolstoy's War and Peace. Mm. And I told a friend that it blew my soul wide open. It was a real mystical experience. And um, and I wanted to explore what happened to me because, you know, I didn't have a word for mysticism when I was 16 years old. But um, that really, th that plus that interest in nature, the experience I had at 12 at, at Niagara Falls and, and my general experience of the beauty and the, the spirituality of creation uh, growing up in Wisconsin, um, that all came together for me. And that's why I joined the Dominicans was to explore, like I say, what happened to me. And uh, eventually I got language for it. And... Um, and as you say, that's very astute of you. Yes, my I think the basis of creation spirituality. When I got, when it was finally named for me when I was studying in Paris with uh, Pere Chenu, um, the Dominican, and he named the between Fall Redemption Christianity and Creation Centered Christianity. When he named that distinction, like I say in my autobiography, the the scales came off my eyes. I fell off my horse like, oh, it just made so much sense to me. And so that's what I've run with ever since. And I'll always be grateful to Kapirishanu. That explains the use of the term creation spirituality. Tell us, especially for people who are unfamiliar with it, what is the essential uh, substance of creation spirituality and why is it uh, a break from uh, prior or uh, pre-existing. Uh -huh, the fall redemption tradition, yes. Well, it begins with the whole. And you know, um, David Bohm, the physicist, said, I'm a postmodern physicist who begins with the whole, W-H-O-L-E. And that's what I love about Christ spirituality. It begins with the whole enchilada, with the universe, with the cosmos. I mean, here, the modern era, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. No, Descartes, it took 13.8 billion years of the universe to give you an earth and a sun and a moon and a body and food and all the rest. That's why we all are, because of the universe, not because we think. Thinking came very late in the history of the universe. So um, uh, I, I just think Chris Petrelli is right where our consciousness should be today. And it's about gratitude, therefore. It's about the blessing that existence is. Um, the, the poet Rilke says, existence is a miracle. And, and Einstein talked the same way, that the real marvel of being here is being here. <laughs> Let's not take that for granted. And, um, uh, and uh, so what, what science is saying today about our arrival and our history and evolution is so, so valuable to contextualize ourselves, but also to, to be able to realize how sacred uh, the universe is. And of course, with our ingenuity now, we've got web telescope and all, 
bringing back these astounding pictures, which contain history, of course, and therefore powerful imagination, again, of uh, of where we come from. And so I just think this is what it means to talk about creation spirituality. You begin with creation. And um, the fact is that the Bible actually begins that way. Chapter 1 of Genesis doesn't say a thing about sin. Not a thing. Because sin is a human thing. So to begin with sin is to begin with the human. It's utterly anthropocentric. And we're not going to solve our problems of malfeasance and violence and all the other obvious sins that humans indulge in without getting the bigger picture. And so I think that a lot of religion that tries to begin with sin just fumbles all over itself and and ends up um, uh, making pretzels of us and, of course, leading with shame and guilt and all the rest. And, and what Genesis 1 leads with goodness. And that's what original blessing is. Blessing is the theological word for goodness. So, you know, Genesis 1 says, you know, the sun is good, the moon is good, and then the trees were good, and the earth is good, and the other animals are good. And then humans came along at the end, which is exactly what science is saying today. And together, the whole picture was very good. And that word in Hebrew can also be translated beautiful. Mm. All these beings are beautiful, and together, and we're there too, it's very beautiful. Hey, that's original blessing. That's the difference between starting with original blessing and original sin. Now, my book, Original Blessing, blew the roof off the Vatican, obviously. Not the present one. Pope Francis is into this. But the other two popes were freaked out. because. And what I learned from that is how invested patriarchy is in sin and pessimism and and uh, giving us the bad news. I mean, um, and and also it's just so dull, it's so um, <laughs> banal to say, oh, humans are sinners. I mean, just read any newspaper, you know, read about Putin. <laughs> any day there's about 30 cents. Read about this Soros guy. You can't tell the truth about anything, even his mother and his race. I need to religion. correct you. you it's Santos. Oh, Santos, excuse me. Uh, you know, sin is obvious. You know, what's less obvious is what a miracle it is to be here. And with science, and of course, a creation spirituality cares about science because, duh, what is a scientist's job but to tell us what nature is about and how it's been doing its work and uh, how it's going to do its work. And it's religion's job to remind scientists and everyone that the universe is sacred, that, you know, it's bigger than us. We depend on it. And uh, we really ought to be grateful, number one, but also helpful in um, in keeping Earth going and keeping Earth uh, healthy so that not just our species thrives, but all these other glorious species we share the Earth with can thrive. So um, that's creation spirituality. What's interesting is in the Jewish tradition, in the Bible, the tradition of wisdom um, the books of Job and the Psalms and the Book of Wisdom and uh, and Song of Songs and all these, these are all creation-centered books in the Hebrew Bible. And all scholars agree that Jesus comes from that tradition, from the wisdom tradition. And, of course, you see it in his stories. His teaching is all about nature stories, isn't it? So this guy was very close to nature. And, um, and then, of course, he took lessons from nature and uh and of course he 
brings up compassion and justice and injustice and and the importance of getting outraged by injustice and doing something about it. And of course, he paid an ultimate price, like like Gandhi did and King did and all and all kinds of people do who stand up for justice. So um, uh, this takes us back to the origins of of Christianity, of the historical Jesus. And the Nicene Creed, which Christians mouth, those who are still in church, and go to church on Sunday, that was developed in the fourth century by an emperor, the Emperor Constantine. And that was three centuries after Christians had been persecuted by the emperor, the, the empire, and, and the same empire that murdered Jesus. So, you know, it's a little strange that we begin Christianity with what the emperor put together in the fourth century and not with what Jesus was really about in the first century, because Jesus, the, the Nicene Creed never even mentions compassion, for example, or justice. It doesn't mention any of Jesus' teachings. It jumps from the beginning of the world to Jesus' birth and his death. And that's kind of it. And he talks about the church. But uh, hey, what got him killed? What got him killed was that he stepped on the toes of the imperial powers of his day because he was speaking on behalf of the poor, of which he was pretty much one. And um, so, you know, Christianity has taken a lot of detours over the, over the centuries uh, from Jesus himself. So, um, uh, and, and of course, we, we've forgotten how thoroughly Jewish Jesus was and how the values that you find in the Jewish tradition about justice and compassion and so forth, that these are something we're all called to. And uh, just because we talk about them or because they're in a book doesn't mean we're practicing them. And uh, all generations and all peoples have to live up to these kinds of values. But what we're discovering today that's so exciting is that, hey, this is essentially what the Buddhists are saying too. Uh, Dalai Lama says we can do away with all religion, but we can't do away with compassion. That is my religion, he says. And hey, I, I can identify with that. I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Luke 6. But you compassionate, like your creator in heaven is compassionate. So there's a growing consensus, really, when you get together and shake the religions down to their to their essences, that what they're saying is, hey, we humans are capable of compassion. Isn't that news? Because <laughs> I mean, that's my history. Isn't that pretty? What's uh, that? Jesus, uh, my mother said he was a, a nice Jewish boy. Um, <laughs> um, I want to ask. I want to ask you about a couple of things, but I can't help but uh, uh, pay homage to a late friend of mine who, uh, when asked about uh, Descartes' um, I think, therefore, I am, said he put Descartes before the source. <laughs> That's good. That's uh, good. I, I've not heard you. that one before. Good for you. I'm glad you got a chance it was, to share It that. was memorable. Speaking of... Uh, of uh, Jesus and Christianity, you're still a man of uh, that tradition. And I'm really curious how you see or frame certain core tenets that are still preached every Sunday. How do you understand 
the resurrection? How do you understand son of God? How do you understand uh, I am the truth and the way? How, how do these sort of core the teachings, which most of the Christians I know have either rejected or struggle with in their lives? Well, that's a really good question. And um, I think one problem we have is taking those um, teachings too literally, mm. and too dogmatically. Um, so let me just see now. You 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 name three of them. I am the I am the truth. That was one, but another was um, the resurrection. Resurrection. Okay, and the and, other. Oh and yeah, the other notion was of son, son of, of God. God. Right. Well, let's be the son of God. What I've learned from scholars and Jewish scholars is that the phrase son of God precedes the New Testament. That um, at times the Jews were called son of God. And wisdom, I, a rabbi once approached me after I lectured, I think it was on the East Coast. And he said, you know, in my tradition as a Jew, he said, we believe anyone who's living a life of wisdom is called, is a son of God. So he said, I have no problem calling Jesus son of God because I think he was a man of wisdom and also courage and all the rest. But the problem is with that that um, article, the, as opposed to a son yeah. of God. And so I, I don't, so anyway, um, I think we're all called to be sons and daughters of God. And in fact, Eckhart has sermon after sermon about that. He says, what good is it to me if Mary gave birth to the Son of God 1,400 years ago, and I don't give birth to the Son of God in my own person and in my own time and so forth. So we're all here. He says, God is always needing to be born. So, of course, we're all here to birth God, and we are sons and daughters of God. And, of course, Paul uses that phrase on several occasions. So I think we have to just dilute it a little bit. And this is where you see the Nicene Creed come in. It put Jesus so much on a pedestal as the only son of God that um, it kind of made the rest of us, uh, or should I say, uh, just uh, here to do nothing but worship Jesus instead of to start acting like sons and daughters of God and bearing the wisdom that a son of God uh, bears. So again, um, I feel that the Christianity, to be true to itself, has to return to its Jewish roots and origins. And so I find that Jewish take on Son of God to be the answer to that question. And um, I do think Jesus was an exceptional, exceptionally, you know, wise and good and, and brave uh, Son of God, but that he came to render us all sons of God. And... Um, and the, er, many early theologians said that, that God became a human being in order that human beings can become God. So that just kind of brings us back in a circle together, not putting him too much on a pedestal. So that's my answer to that. Regarding the resurrection, um, first of all, people forget again that uh, the Jews in Jesus' time were having a wild debate. And of course, Jewish tradition very good at debates. <laughs> yeah, they, never, they never stop altogether. But um, about uh, resurrection, and um, uh, and Jesus was took the side, or at least Jesus' followers took the side of those who who were 
of believing in resurrection. But the emphasis was not on the resurrection of the individual, but rather on the resurrection of the people. And again, I think the individualism of Western culture has distorted the meaning of resurrection. Now, um, Otto Rank, who was Jewish and not Christian, this way, he said, if you look at human history, the whole story of humans is around immortality. He says, what got the pyramids built? It was a quest for immortality in Africa because uh, they figured if, if everyone contributed to building this amazing monument and we put the pharaoh in there, the pharaoh would be immortal and everyone else would participate vicariously. And he said the same is true of kings. You know, the, the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king. He said that just was, it's a projection of the community on one individual. But he said, the point is that, and he goes through the history of humanity, beginning with tribal. It, originally, immortality was a tribe. That if the tribe survived, you know, that we all survived. But he, he says, we all carry these eras of immortality with us. But that... Um, but he says what Jesus and Paul did, and he, he again, he, he says this as a Jew, not as a Christian, was the most revolutionary idea in human history because it democratized resurrection. It said everybody, no one has to fear about death, so we can get fully. That's how he interprets the resurrection. And I think, and, and again, it's in terms of this quest for immortality that he sees playing out. I mean, Trump Towers is a quest for immortality. I mean, you know, you can get right home, down home on this stuff. You know, how how people are looking for their immortality. And just chill it if this other idea is um, holds some validity to it. But um, a good friend of mine is a real uh, New Testament scholar, Bruce Chilton, on resurrection. And it's a thick book. It's really interesting. And one of his main points is this, you know, that Paul says that he interviewed 500 people who experienced Jesus after death, his death. And so the question becomes, do we know people who've had encounters with people after they died? All kinds of people have a friend who's, who's not religious at all. He's Chinese, but he never practiced Buddhism or anything. And he's a very practical, down-to-earth guy. After his mother's later, she appeared at the at, at the end of her, his bed, and they had a conversation. And this guy's a blue-collar guy. You know, he works with his hands. He's not some kind of floating New Age freak or something. <laughs> and every time he tells me the story, you know, the tears come to his eyes. It was just such a beautiful encounter. And she said things to him like, don't forget what I've taught you. And, you know, practice your, you know, our ethics and morality and all this, you know. And so, to me, that's resurrection. And it it, it parallels exactly the story of these 500 people that show up in the gospel stories. That Because everyone who experienced Jesus after they had a different experience. Some saw him as a spirit. Some had a meal with him. I mean, and some, and some left brain, you know, uh, philosophers say, well, see, this proves this. It's all contradiction, you know. They don't agree. I see it's the opposite. It's all everyone's individual story, and um, I meet lots of people. I, I was asked. I was when I lecture. I often tell people, "Shut your eyes, because it's not a competition. Shut your eyes. 
How many of you had an experience of someone whom you loved who died and they came back to you afterwards? 80% of arms go up. Wow. How many of you have friends who aren't crazy who tell you this? 75% of the arms go up. So resurrection is a much more familiar experience than we talk about in our culture. So I think that's what it's about. But it's also, and this is the Jewish dimension, it has to be put in the, in the community context. And, you know, I was part of a funeral for a Lakota friend of mine, a Lakota teacher. It was the most powerful funeral of my life. But I remember at one point an elder came with a, a bag in his hand, you know, just a grocery bag. And he pulled out of it, his name was Buck Ghosthorse, Buck's jacket. And he held it up and he said, see this jacket? You all remember Buck in this jacket? You're never going to see him in this jacket. So let him go. He's on his own journey now. And the whole place, it was outdoors, thank God, because if it was indoors, it would have cracked every stained glass window in the church. Um, the place just roared, you know. I mean, they really know how to get their grief out. And then he held up his coffee cup. He already had a coffee cup with him. And uh, same thing, let him go. He's on a journey. So I just think, again, there's more of a consensus about resurrection. Call it resurrection. Call it reincarnation. Call it um uh, for, but I've, I've written about this, the, the pre-biblical term, but uh, like the, the Celts talk about. But um, the point is, people do quest for something beyond this world. And, um, and I think that resurrection is one way of naming it. But it's not a literal thing. It's, uh, it is something experiential. And I think that... Um, it helps people to live more guided lives. And um, I, <laughs> and I, I, I just laughing because I had a talk the other day with a Buddhist friend, and he asked me, no one's ever asked me this before, but he just said, when you are reincarnated, how do you want to be reincarnated? And uh, I never thought about that, but quite spontaneously, I said, I want to come back as a scientist because I think hmm. they can really do a lot of good for us today. And uh, he said, and I asked him, he wanted to come back as a monk. But I say, well, good luck. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so I think it's fun. We should be talking about what's after this life. Um, and, of course, some people will say nothing. But um, if there's nothing, how is it possible people come back to us periodically and tell us there's something? Um, so... That's my take on resurrection in a nutshell. There was one more. That was I am the other one is I am the truth. Yeah. I am, yeah. Those are the cosmic Christ sayings. Mm. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And what that means is we flip it. In what way are you and I doors to one another and to others? In what way are we good shepherds, especially at this time of ecological, you know, crisis, that we have to become better shepherds to other species? Uh, not just sheep, but how are we taking care of the elephants? How are we taking care of the, of the fishes and the ocean and so forth? So um, the I am is the divine name, like from Exodus, but it applies to all of us. It's not just about Jesus. And in fact, scholars will say Jesus didn't say these words. These were put into his mouth long after he died. And so, I, first of all, I admire the... the um, Chutzpah of the gospel writers who didn't hesitate in Jesus' mouth. 
Um, but really, the whole I am practice is uh, is very strong, obviously, in John's gospel and, and so forth. But but it's strong around the world. You see the I am sayings in, in, in the Vedas of India. And you see them in African sacred songs as well. So the whole I am is about our our dignity and even our, our divinity. And so it fits into what I call the cosmic Christ awareness. So what Judaism would call Shalem, uh, the, the image of God that mm-hmm. we are, or what Buddhism would call the Buddha nature, that we do carry this within us. But I think it's a question mark for us. In what ways are we doors to one another? Are we um, uh, living bread for one another? Are we uh, truth and, and seekers of truth? For one another. So again, I think there's a distortion when Christ, some Christians want to say this is only about Jesus. It isn't. Uh, it's about all of us. And it was even Christians themselves had that experience in the first century that um, Jesus had empowered them with a self-awareness and a dignity that they hadn't had before. And so they remembered it and then they put those words back into his mouth. And, um, and that's fine if you look at it the way humans do things in this world, but not if you look at it as and doctrine that is frozen uh, back in the first century. Around Thank Jesus you for that. No, it's how we're all other places. Thank you, you know? Matthew. I think that would be very helpful for uh, people. Another thing I find helpful, you mentioned uh, Meister Eckhart before. Um, in, in my encounters with uh, people who were raised in Christian traditions and who struggled with it or rejected it, an important uh, experience is often the discovery of the great Christian mystics, whether it's Eckhart or John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or your friend uh, Thomas Merton, um, how did that did that factor into your evolution as well? The discovery of the mystics and and why is it so hard for Christians to discover these people? <laughs> Where are they hiding them from us? Yeah. Yes, you know, Father B. Griffith was a wonderful Benedictine monk who lived in India. Yeah, this man, and he he said to me, he said, if Christian not recovers this mystical tradition and teach it. We should just fold up and go out of business. It has mm. nothing to offer. So um, um, the truth is that there are mystics in all the world traditions. And I and we, we're all called to be mystics. In fact, um, John Dominic Crossan, a very uh, renowned uh, New Testament scholar today, says that for Paul, you cannot be a Christian without being a mystic. So, and, and Paul is mystic. So I was using the phrase in Christ, in Christ. Well, that's a mystical phrase. Uh, and of course, the phrase is I use uh, panentheism that we all things are in God and God is in all things. So the mystical perspective is one of non-dualism. And um, it's even what we've been talking about, that, that we all carry the, the divine um, energy within us. That we're, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, a great mystic of the 12th century, she says, every we call everybody of the sun, the sun. We say the sun hits me. Uh, so every ray of God is God. 
So every creature is a ray of an expression of God, an image of God, a ray of God. So every creature is is um, it carries the divine in it. And um, so the the mystics, I I um I love them. I've written three books on Hildegard, three books on Meister Eckhart, two books on Thomas Aquinas, recently a book on Julian of Norwich. Um, I love the mystics because they take us to the edge. Uh, that this. Uh, I love that phrase from John of the Cross, launch out into the deep, launch mm. out into the deep. I just love that, you know, it's an invitation, leave the shore and hence, you know. And I was just thinking the other day, here we are in the age of Aquarius. Uh, it's just come about during our lifetimes. So that phrase is especially relevant, isn't it? Because Aquarius is about water. And uh, of course, water is also about deeper consciousness and launching out into the deep that's what i think spirituality is it's about living life out of a deep place and not out of not out of a surface place of the false self who's trying to please others rather the true self that's deep and is really the real you and and also where where you connect with everything else because ultimately everything is interconnected at the deep level at the superficial level of ground you might say we're we're um, battling each other <laughs> but deep down uh we carry what Jung would talk about the common archetypes the common universal experiences and um why is it that every culture has its own um spiritual expressions and um and uh music and costumes and dance and food i mean we all carry this stuff in common but there's diversity thank god and that's what makes life interesting so i think just the invitation to live at a at a deep is what the the mystics are reminding us and of course my whole pitch is that we're all mystics because a mystic is a lover in us and we're all prophets and of course i get that as their lives in the recesses of every human existence, a prophet. So the mystic says yes, and William James was big on that. The, he said calls mysticism the yes faculty. The mystic says yes to life, and the prophet says no to, to interfere with those forces and movements that are counter to, uh, to beauty and to justice and to love. Um, so the, the, the prophet is defending uh, what the mist in us loves. So the, the prophet is the mystic in action, as William Hawking put it. And uh, he studied with William James. And um, I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. The prophet mm. is the mystic in action. So the, the, the warrior is the lover who is defending what one cherishes. And there we have it. That's what I think adult spirituality is about, being a mystic, a lover, and a prophet, one who interferes, as Heschel says, and uh, the yes and the no. And um, so I, yeah, I, I very much, I think the mystics tended to get religion right. And, um, and you know, I, not just, you know, I, I'm, I deal with, with my own uh, tradition, but of course the prophets were, prophets and, and mystics and great poets. And I'm thinking of the, of course, of Hafiz and of Rumi, mm -hmm. the great mystics of the East. And um, 
so every tradition has their mystics. And the mystics get down center of things, and they always get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Invariably, they get in trouble. Jesus was one of them. Mm. Jesus got in trouble. But I think that he put he put love ahead of rules at times. And this didn't sit well with those who, who feel it's their job to keep the rules. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I think that's part of the, the, the history of mysticism, too, is misunderstanding and, and um, projection, fear, and, and envy. Because a lot of mystics tend to draw followers, and then some people get envious about that because oh, they yeah. want more people. You know, <laughs> so it, it stirs up. Mystics stir up a lot. Uh, Speaking of stirring things up. Uh, but I, my point is, let's democratize mysticism. Mm. Go ahead. So, I want to uh, turn to the future. A I want to democratize mysticism. Democratize yeah. mysticism. I like the phrase. And um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll steal it. Um, <laughs> but, um, it, looking ahead, um, creation spirituality, I suppose you could call it a theology, but is it a fixed one? Is it something that evolves and changes? And if so, where... Do you see it going? It certainly evolves and changes, or it's dead. <laughs> it 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 doesn't belong in this earth because um, all beings evolve and change, and everything we give birth to evolves and changes. And that's um, <clears throat> that's where history is so important. Um, not, I don't mean academic history, but the awareness that evolution is a is a habit of the universe and. Uh, and of course, Grace Butcher very much emphasizes creativity. It talks about our the co-creation, that we work with the Creator, if you will, or with the Holy Spirit to give birth to new things. And of course, humanity is evolving very rapidly now, and um, all the technology and everything else is, is almost more than we can take. Obviously, we've outpaced our wisdom and... Uh, we make these newfangled things that get us into so much trouble. Social media might be a good example of that. A mixed blessing, we might call it. Absolutely, of course, free spirituality to be alive, to be a, an alive tradition, uh, will evolve. Um, and, of course, that's the, the danger built into that, we, that uh, people like to... It's like anything else that gets started. You know, first it may be some kind of charismatic originally that happened with Jesus, of course, and then that person passes, and then there's a lot of hustle. Where do we go from here, and how do we organize and all this stuff? And usually such leaders are not real organization specialists anyway. Sometimes they are. Dominic, for example, the founder of the Dominican Order, had a very legal mind, and he set up a constitution. This lasted 800 years, and is basically democratic. I mean, he was way, you know, this is the 13th century. And so Dominicans um, kind of stayed together for centuries, although they had some horrible um, individuals like Torquemada, 
were the two Dominicans who wrote the book Malleus Malleus Malefarciarum, which is how to torture a witch in the 15th century or 14th century. So, I mean, they've had their deep, deep shadow times. But the point is that um, usually, I think, uh, charismatic leaders, they're mystics who come up with, which is about intuition. Uh, Einstein called the mystical experience intuition. He said, this Mm. is where we get our values from intuition, not from the rational mind, but from intuitive mind. So um, intuitives are not real good at organizing. And they, you know, if they're, if they're lucky, they'll have accountants and lawyers around them to kind of keep some, (laughs) some order. But, but the point I'm making is that when I've done some study of the, the sociology of organizations and and there's always after the person departs or or at least a couple of generations after there's this hustle for for leadership and and structure and how do you get it organized well that's that's dangerous uh, father b talks about that you you have these big intuitions and then you you want to share it with others and, but then you need organization and then you need doctrine you know you kind of need this is what binds us there and then you need this and then you need that so this is why things always need um, renewal and mm. regeneration, and and when they freeze, of course, then you're really in trouble. So and of course now with our deeper awareness of evolution, I think we should all we can all kind of lean into this reality more more fully. So again, back to creativity that um, Grispetri celebrates our creativity, and creativity is always on the move, isn't it? So of course um, it'll be giving like like one thing we've done is to create what we call the cosmic mass, which is using rave and DJ and VG and so forth to to celebrate to worship with. But you know all that's going to evolve too. In fact, when we started 25 years ago, it was called the techno cosmic mass because techno was alive and well 25 years ago. But now techno is evolved or gone out of the scene, and we have other forms of music. So we just call it the cosmic mass. Because we're responding to um, to the evolution of music, and that's what humans are about. That's what culture is about. And of course, it's not about just responding to the new. You bring along the old. In fact, that's why we call it a mass, because we are bringing along this this experience that has a two thousand year history or so that we've called the mass as not just a Catholic or even a Christian thing, Leonard Bernstein wrote a mass, and he's Jewish, so it's it's leaked into the culture, you know, into the language, and so um, of course it will evolve. The, the cosmic mass will be something different twenty years from now than than our efforts at it today, you know. So the the key thing is to kind of know there is form. We need form. Humans need form, but form is not meant to be eternal. Or rigid, and that's what evolution teaches us. The forms themselves evolve. It's not just things that come and go. Forms come and go. So we have to kind of take in that scientific awareness today and realize all our forms, just like the Buddha say, are impermanent. Everything's impermanent. So let's not call them dogmas, and let's not condemn each other to hell because some see the form passing and some see it more sturdy and rigid. You know. I think that's how we have to get smarter as mm-hmm. humans to realize form itself evolves. And one of the forms uh, is you. And we, in the few <laughs> minutes we have left, uh, tell us what we can expect of you 
is there anything now you're, you're in your 80s um are there any projects that are uh that are especially meaningful to you that you want to accomplish in the in the time you have remaining uh what what can we expect from you what what are you writing what uh what's on the horizon <laughs> well i'm working on a course um with Carolyn Meese's organization on John of the Cross. Mm. And um, I I think John of the Cross is a great poet, but not so good a commentator on his own poetry because he only had the traditional un-Jewish structure of purgation, illumination, and union for interpreting mystical experience. That's what he had in the 16th century when he lived. I think the four paths of creative spirituality, be a positive and negative, a creative and transformative, these are Jewish and these Can are. Can you Jewish. repeat those? Yeah, the via positiva, which is joy and wonder and awe, the via negativa, which is on the one hand silence, but also suffering and grief, the via creativa, which is creativity, and the via transformative, which is justice and compassion. Those I know, I've been told, are Jewish and they're biblical. And what I want to do is is take his poetry, which is great, but interpret it using those four paths, not his paths of purgation, illumination, union. I think you get a much deeper experience of John the Cross hmm. because he was um, shorthanded by his theology. It was like a straitjacket. Furthermore, he's being hounded by the Inquisition his whole life, and so he had to be super careful. I really think some of his commentaries he wrote to set the Inquisition off his trail. It's kind of like me. My first books had funny titles. One was called I'm Becoming a Musical Mystical Bear, Spiritual American <laughs> Style. And the other one I called We, We, We All the Way Home uh, Toward Essential Prophetic Spirituality. And I was once asked by um, Baum, uh, a sociologist and a priest, I forget it was a Gregory Baum, uh, why you get those crazy titles? And I said, well, I'm listening to my dreams and I don't trust institutions anymore. And this was early in my theological career. And then he said, there might be another reason too. And then I realized, yeah, it was to keep the Vatican off my trail. They wouldn't come after someone <laughs> who had written a book on musical mystical bears and we we all the way home. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so one thing I want to do then is I would like to teach this course and then write up a short book on John the Cross a, a creation-centered version, because he was very creation-centered. Like when he was novice master, he would have the, the young monks go out in nature for an hour to contemplate with the, and he'd say, the stones and the sky and the fish, trees, you know, and he got complaints. They should be in there reading the Bible. No, he said, let them read the Bible in nature. So he was very creation-centered. So that's one thing. Another thing is my mentor, Per Chenu, Wonderful man. A new book just came out on him. I can show it to you here. And and um, he was a real prophet in his day. I've just been writing this week in my daily meditations on the relationship between his thinking and Martin Luther King Jr.'s thinking. Hmm. Because um, they both got themselves in deep trouble. Chanu was, <laughs> he his, his first important book was on education, reinventing seminary education, and it was put on the index in 1942 by the Pope. 
And then he was worked with the worker priest movement, which was, of course, working with Marxists and the unions of France after the war. And they creamed him for that. And he was exiled. Like I was, they wanted me to leave Oakland and go back to Chicago to end my work here. Um, they told him to leave Paris. He was forbidden to live in Paris from 1954 to, to the Second Vatican Council in 1962. Mm. And, um, uh, and then he was very important at the council, but it's interesting that he was there as a paritus or a theological advisor to a bishop from Madagascar, a third world bishop, not a bishop from Paris or, or Germany or something. But um, so he lived an amazing life and I had him in class, you see, and it was the last semester he ever taught was his course that I had. And it was during the events of 68 that brought down to Gaul's government. So Anyway, I want to do a book on him, I think. I owe him so much, but he 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 deserves to be known. I mean, he was... Can you, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, we have to go. Yes. Can you spell his, his name? Yeah, Chenu, C-H-E-N-U. C-H-E-N-U. He's a French Dominican. Yeah, he's the one who named the creation spiritual tradition for me. But he also was a father, grandfather to the liberation theology. The class that I had, two-thirds of the students were from South America, and this was 1968 the very year that they that the British theology went public. Hmm. And um, uh, he was just a wonderful human being, as well as a brilliant scholar. But he he um, but he was treated, you know, just so badly. But he he wasn't bitter at all. And uh, I'll never forget one class. He was he mentioned uh, Nicholas Acuza, who was a 15th century scientist. And he went through the it, he said, well, Nicholas was a great scientist, a mathematician. He was a, a theologian and a mystic, and he was a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. Then he looked up and said, that's not necessarily a good reference, you understand. <laughs> and then he went back. You know? So he, he got his little digs in a sense of humor. But, well, I um, hope um, I we're it. all able to discover him through you. And I'll, we should tell our listeners that these uh, all of your work is referenced on your website. This forthcoming program on John of the Cross, I'm sure, will be on your website. It's matthewfox.org. And Matthew, thanks so much for being with us and um, keep up the good work. And listeners, thank you for being here. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Email me with your suggestions of uh, people we should interview and how we can do them better. Uh, go to my personal website, philipgoldberg.com. Subscribe to my mailing list. I promise I will not annoy you with uh, burdensome emails. Uh, and uh, stay in touch. Thanks for Thank joining you. us, and we'll see you next time.
I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.